0: Well, hey there, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to three different places. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and then Romans chapter 6. So three different passages of Scripture. Uh, They'll be available on the screen as well and in the chat section, but if you do have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to those passages. Kicking off a new series today entitled Jesus at the center. Jesus at the center. We're going to spend the next few weeks talking about the importance of keeping Jesus at that focal point place, at that central place, that foundational place of our lives. And it could go kind of without saying, right? Jesus needs to be the center of our lives. But I think as followers of Christ, we need to revisit what that means practically, And it doesn't matter whether you've known Jesus for a short amount of time or for decades. We can lose sight of who Jesus is in our lives. I don't know about you, but for me, I I start thinking that I can figure it out on my own, that I can go in my own strength. I can do things my way or, uh, you know, and I I resort to my own wisdom and then I fall short. And things don't go the way I expect, and I struggle, and all kinds of issues come into play with that. But really understanding that keeping Jesus at the central place of our lives is the foundation. It is... The answer to all of the issues. It is the answer. He is the answer to everything that we would face in our lives. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more today and then again over the next few weeks. You see, Jesus is not just the means to salvation. He's not just the one who made it possible, although that is, uh, central part and is a key part of what he did. But Jesus wasn't just the gate that led us into some kind of paradise. He wasn't just the gatekeeper, That that there is a, a foundational aspect of the life of Jesus that we then build our lives upon that is so important for us to remember. In fact, he is the foundation of our lives. That when we give our lives to Christ, when we say yes to him, when we surrender our lives to him, ask him to be the Lord of our lives, ask him to forgive us of our sins, and we repent that he at that point becomes that foundation on which our lives have been built. If you're familiar with construction at all, you understand this. If you live in a house, which probably all of you do, you know that the foundation of what your house is built on is so important. Even though it's something that's not always visible, it's not seen. You, you don't look at the foundation and think, "Wow, that's that's a, a really pretty foundation." Foundations are are, are practical. They're strong, uh, and there's an intention that's built into them so that what what is built would last. In fact, solid foundations lead to lasting structures. Solid foundations lead to lasting structures. Here in our own nation in the United States, you can go back to the East Coast and you can look at buildings that are as old as our nation. 300 years. You can go back and you can look at these, these, these older structures that have been built out of brick and stone. And they have solid foundations. They've stood that test of time. And then you can travel o- across the Atlantic over to, to Western Europe, and you'll find buildings that are a couple thousand years old, uh, cathedrals and, and villages and buildings that, that still stand today because of the foundations that they have. And then, of course, you can go to the Middle East and into Asia and places in Africa where there are buildings that are 5,000 plus years old that are still standing today. And it really comes down to this, that those buildings, those structures were built on foundations that have lasted, that the construction of the foundation was so intentional and was so precise and was so strong that those structures have stood for all of these hundreds and thousands of years. Our lives are no different. If we want to see our lives built and lasting and and building something that, that really can stand and weather the storms of life and weather the things that we engage, we have to start with a solid foundation. We have to know that Jesus is that foundation in our lives. So I want to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is uh, the, the, the epistle of Paul, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And I'm going to read verses 1 through uh, 1 and 2. And then we're going to talk about a few things about Corinth. So this is what Paul says, uh, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Soth, uh, Sothenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul is writing here to a group of people who live in a city, a modern city, a metropolitan city in the world at that time. Corinth was located, it was a crossroads of trade and commerce and culture and and, uh, social activity in the world at that time. It was a a city uh, ruled by and, and governed by the Romans, but it was a historically Greek city. And in this place, you find this melting pot of people from all over the world, really not unlike what we have here in Southern California, that Corinth was very similar in so many ways to what what exists in Southern California, where you have people from all over the world, trade, commerce from all over the world, happening in this place. Not only was it a center of of Commerce but it was also a place of of incredible learning and study as a Greek city part of its heritage would have been that it was a place where a lot of thinking was done a lot of philosophy really came out of the city uh, there's a lot of social activity and so uh, just just a bustling hub within the world at that time but here's the thing Corinth also had a very dark side there was a lot of corruption. Uh, there was a temple, a, a, a pagan temple and temple worship that took place in that city. There was idolatry and, and there was rampant sexual immorality that was really tied to the worship at the temple in in that city. And so in the midst of all of this brokenness, in the midst of the the money, the trade, the corruption, the the crossroads, the melting pot that the city was, the Holy Spirit births a church. This church is is born in Corinth, that there's a group of people who surrender their lives to Jesus, who say yes to him, and and they begin to build the church in Corinth. And so Paul writes this letter, in fact, it's one of two letters he writes to the Corinthian church to address some of the struggles and some of the issues they had in, in that place as they walked out their faith before the Lord. You see, as the believers in that city, they were caught, they were struggling between living in the culture of the city and their new life in Christ. That they have found this new life in Christ, but they were surrounded with a culture that really stood in opposition to the way that Christ had called them to live. And so there were all kinds of ideas, all kinds of thinking, all, kind, all kinds of money to fix issues. There were kinds of, all kinds of uh, pleasures that could be engaged in, in the city. Uh, and there was power was available. You could, you could pursue power in that city and, and notoriety. And so the believers in the city are caught. Now they have this new life in Christ and they have to figure out how do we live in Christ while we're living in the midst of the world that we do. Which is really no different to the way we are, is it? That we live in a world that is absolutely broken, and we we can see when when we read the news, when he when we walk out of our door, we realize that the world that there is corruption, there is brokenness, there is immorality, there is uh, there are all kinds. There is there's ways of thinking and ways of doing things that don't align with Scripture, with the way that Jesus has called us to live. And we feel that tension of how do we live in this world as ones who have now surrendered our lives to Jesus? Well this is what the Corinthians were dealing with. And this is what Paul really wants to address and what he wants to unpack uh, with them. He he says to them, he starts out by saying to them, uh, it, it, the, what was common in those times, you would start the letter with your name. You wouldn't end it. You wouldn't sign it. You would start with your name so that people would know whose letter they're writing. And so he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That Paul himself asserts this reality that his life was one way before, but he was called out of that to be an apostle of Jesus by the will of God. That it was God's will that called him out of what he was before and into this new life. And so he uses himself as an example right out of the gate. But and he says to them that you are a people who've been sanctified in Christ and called to be his holy people. That this is who you are, that you have been sanctified in Christ. And that just just as I was called to be his apostle, to be an apostle of Christ, that you have been called to be his holy people, that you've been set apart. That you have been set apart. And of course, Paul write, writing to the Corinthians, but the Holy Spirit speaking to us as well. That the Holy Spirit would say to us today that God has sanctified you through Christ and has called you to be his holy people. And he goes on to say, he says, together with those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord. And that, praise the Lord, that includes us. That's us as well. That he is their Lord, our Lord, And ours, theirs as well. That he, he, he ties in the whole family of believers. So this letter isn't just intended for the Corinthians. It's intended for us as well. That God has done the sanctifying work. He has done the sanctifying work in us, cleansing us of our sin, and he has made us his holy people. This is how he starts out a letter written to people living in a broken Broken city in a broken world in a depraved and sinful place. He says, "You've been called out of that, and you have been sanctified, and you are now God's holy people. That this is now your identity. This is who you truly are." So Paul writes to encourage them and exhort them, and throughout the book uh, in his letter of uh, First Corinthians, he he presents all kinds of uh, thoughts and, and perspectives on the issues that they were facing. And there's a number of them written into that particular letter. But here's the, his main point. Here's the key in all of it. This is it. Paul is saying this, that all of the issues and the problems of life can be addressed and solved by knowing Jesus. That all of the issues and problems of life can be addressed by and solved by knowing Jesus, that there is nothing in our human experience that is outside of what Jesus is able to minister to and to care for and and to really to solve, that Jesus is everything that we need. And this is key for us. It's key for us. It was key for the Corinthian church, and it's key for us today. See, a clear understanding of who Jesus is, his life, his work, his purpose, his empowerment, A key understanding of who he is will transform the way that we live our lives. It becomes the foundation on which our lives are built. It's important to remember that Jesus did not come into this world to be famous. That Jesus did not come to earth to be known. His goal was not notoriety. His goal was not popularity. And I think in the midst of a world that, that really celebrates being known, that we look at the way that people would uh, goals that people would have to be known to be famous to be to be popular to to, to have, you know, however many followers on whatever social media channel, to, to have money that comes because of, of my fame, because of, of being seen and being visible. That was not the goal of Jesus. That was not what his purpose was in coming. You see, Jesus came with the express purpose of serving people. He came committed to serving people, to serving people by giving his life. And during his life and during his ministry here on earth, we see that he he would teach, that he would go around, that he would bring healing. See, Jesus had what they needed. He had what people needed. He loved them. He healed them. He taught them. He challenged them. He sat with them. He ate with them. and And he did it in a way that no one else ever had. That Jesus ministered and served and loved and taught in a way that no one else had ever had in the history of humankind. And because of it, people flocked to him. See, Jesus didn't have a PR team. He didn't have, he didn't do advertising, he didn't do rallies and say, hey, go pass out these flyers. Just everywhere he went, he loved people so well and he served people so well and he blessed them and he healed them and he taught with authority that people flocked to him and they shared with each other. If you will, Jesus, Jesus went viral in Galilee, right? Because as he would do the things that he did, as he ministered to the needs of the people, it spread like wildfire and people would come but again that was not his purpose his purpose was not to gather a crowd his his purpose was to serve people to show them a new way to show them that new life and a new way of living life was available see he taught in a way and he he served in a way that no one else ever had see the solutions and the thinking and the teaching And the religious structures of that day were were not enough. Something was missing. Something was missing. Now, we understand this, that we need each other. People need people. We need relationships with each other. Relationships are so important. In fact, they're important in the kingdom of God. But what we need more than relationships with people is we need a relationship with Jesus. And we need that relationship with Jesus to be the primary thing in our lives. It's in my connection. It's in my, my intimacy and in my, my, um, pressing in to the person of Jesus as I hide myself in, in Him, as I find my identity in Him, that there's an overflow of my life that I become resourced to be a blessing to the people around me so that what what those in my family that those uh, in my work environment that those in my neighborhood that those in 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 the church and and beyond what they get is more of Jesus and less of me that Jesus would be the foundation of my life he would be the source of my life and as i lean into him as i press into him that there would be an overflow and a vitality that would come Out of that, so that the relationships I have with others are enriched and vitalized. It's that flow. See, Jesus didn't come to win a popularity contest. He came to bless and serve people. And he did that out of the overflow of his relationship with the Father. See, what people began to discover was that what Jesus was offering was available to them. And what was available to them is available to us today. And that's some of the things that I want to talk about over the next few weeks. But what I want to start with today, and I've already mentioned it a couple of times, is this, that Jesus gives us a new identity. That Jesus gives us a new identity that you have received in Christ when you say yes to him, when you surrender your life to him, that you receive a new identity in Christ. In fact, Paul, writing to the Corinthian church in his second letter, he addresses this idea again. And i got to tell you, I'm encouraged that it took two letters, not just one, for him to share these thoughts. See, because uh, they were slow learners and sometimes we are too. I know I am. I'm a slow learner, and sometimes I don't get it the first time around, or the second time around, or the third time around. And so Paul here has to write a, a follow-up letter to his first letter where he addresses a lot of the issues, and then he finds out no they're still struggling with some of the things that he addressed in the first letter. So he follows up with his second letter to the Corinthian church, and he says, okay, let's have this conversation and again. Let's talk about some of these things again. And he revisits this idea of the identity we have in Christ, again, writing to the Corinthian church in the midst of this depraved culture, in the midst of this this brokenness, in the midst of the hustle and the bustle and the, the, the people coming from out of town and the, the crossroads and all of these things going on. Here's what Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. He says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And all this is from God who reconciled Himself, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. I want to read that again. Let's, let's read through then. Maybe I'm going to slow down a little bit and just follow along. Let these words sink in. and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, you know Paul really just says it plainly, doesn't he? that this is where you are, but you're not there anymore, that because of Christ, because of his work, you were once one way, but you're not that way anymore. the old is gone, and the new has come, that there's been a trade there's been uh, there's been something that has been replaced, and it's not just a revamping. It's not just a remodel, but it is a recreation. So he says if anyone is in Christ, if your life is surrendered to him, if he is the Lord of your life, you've asked him to be the Lord of your life, you've repented of your sin, and you've asked him to be your all, to be your everything, you've put him at the center of everything, that you are now covered by him, that you are hidden. In Him, So that in Christ just means that there has been a willful decision that has been made to say, Jesus, I choose you, that I choose you, and that Jesus then receives you in that act of surrender and in that act of repentance and in that act of faith, and he becomes the Lord of our lives, and we are now in him, and in him we receive this new life. Paul goes on to say that the new creation has come. The new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. The old has gone. That what was once before is no longer that Jesus has done a completely restorative and recreation work in our lives. It's a beautiful picture of the work of Christ in our lives, what he has done for us. And I've got to tell you, this is not aspirational. This is not aspirational. It's not like God is saying, Hey, this is a good starting point. And if you work really hard, if you strive, if you, if you have more good days than bad days, if you have more days where you sin less than you do where you sin more, you'll, you'll get there. You'll make it one day if you work hard enough. This is not aspirational. This is fact that when God in Christ does a recreation work in us, it is a complete work. He has made you a new creation once and for all. This is how God the Father sees you because of the work of Jesus, that you have been made new. See, Paul goes on to say, he says that, that God has reconciled us to himself, not counting people's sins against them. This is, this is so key for us. He did the work that he reconciled us to himself. He didn't say, hey, now if you put in the effort, if you put in the work, you, you can be reconciled to me. Jesus did the heavy lifting. Remember I said earlier, he came and he ministered and he lived and he served in a way that no one else had. He didn't come for his own glory, but he came to serve us, to bring new life to us. And then it says that he doesn't count people's sins against them. This is holy scripture. This is the Bible reminding you and reminding me that God doesn't count our sin against us. You know, it's so easy to hold a grudge. It's so easy to be offended by something and we hang on to it and we stew on it. And I think because of our culture and because of the world that we live in, how easy it is because of human nature for us to hang on to things that we project that to the Lord and we say, well, God must remember the things I've done wrong. But Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not the way that he works. See, because he's not corrupt, that he's not broken, that he's not sinful, that when he decrees something, when he, when he does a work, it is a complete work. And he says, I do not count your sin against you because you have been reconciled. There is this relationship. There is this fullness of relationship now with God. See, there's two things that we need to address in this and I want to un- unpack these a little bit when it comes to the counting of sin. The first is this, it's our own thinking. Your thinking and my thinking. See, we can get in our own heads. We can count, we can count our sin against ourselves when God doesn't count our sin against us. That we become so aware and we are so aware of the places where we mess up, the places where we make mistakes. And we can start thinking, well, you know what? God must count that against me. I know I did that thing, or I thought that that thought, or I acted that way. And God must count, because that that was just bad. And God must count that. And we get in our own heads, and we let our own imagine, imaginations run wild. And we become accusers of ourselves. But God says, no, no, that's not how I work. See, that when we would bring those thoughts, when we would bring those imaginations before Jesus and we would ask him, try this, what do you say, Jesus? What do you think of this issue, this place of sin, this place of brokenness in my life? What would he say? Well, I know what he would say. He would say this, I paid the penalty for that. I took that sin. That sin has been forgiven. I don't count that against you. I don't count that against you. Jesus doesn't beat us up, yet so often we beat ourselves up. See, Jesus extends grace. He extends grace. He doesn't bring judgment. He doesn't bring shame. He extends grace. And it's so hard for us to receive that. I was just talking to a friend yesterday, and we were talking about how hard it is to believe, to receive that Jesus has accepted and loves us the way that we are in our brokenness, that he has made us whole, that we want to go, no, 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 it's, it, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't sit well. I need to do something. I need to pay some kind of penalty. And Jesus says, no, I paid the penalty for your sin. Paul addresses this tension, by the way, in Romans chapter 6, because for some they to say, well, okay, well, grace, Wonderful, Jesus extends grace, so just do whatever you want to do. But that's not the case at all, and Paul addresses this in Romans 6. 1. He says this, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into that, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. Again, Paul, I love how he just like addresses things head on. So shall we keep on going sinning? Because grace is just such a wonderful gift. I want to experience more grace, so I'll just sin more. Not at all. Paul says, no, certainly not. By no means. We've died to sin, that we who have our lives hidden in Christ, we've died to sin. When Jesus died on the cross and he was buried in that grave, that he took our sin upon himself and he took that sin and the penalty of that sin to the grave with him. And so we died with him to that sin. He says we've been baptized into Christ Jesus. We were baptized into Christ Jesus. We were baptized into this death that took on that penalty of that sin. But Jesus rose again and he defeated sin and the grave. And just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too have this new life. So Paul says there's a different motivation here. There's a different way of living. See, when I understand what Jesus has done for me, the work that he has done, the central place that he has in my life and the, and the transformative renewing work that he has done it calls me to live differently my identity is reshaped see because jesus doesn't want to beat you into submission he wants to love you into freedom jesus doesn't want to beat you into submission he wants to love you into freedom and that's what grace does that the grace and the love and the mercy of God brings about new life in our lives. We become a new creation. And Jesus says, you don't have to live that way anymore because I've called you into something new. I have given you something new. It is fully accessible to you. And when we understand and we experience The depth and the joy and the freedom that comes from living fully in Christ. That our appetite for the things of the past diminishes and fades and goes away. And our love and our hunger for more of Jesus increases. Jesus doesn't want to beat you into submission. He wants to love you into freedom. And so there's the thinking of our own minds, the accusations that we would bring against ourselves. But then there's also the accusations of the enemy that he not only brings against us, the things that he would say to us and whisper to us, the places where he would seek to steal, kill, and destroy. But he also comes before the Father, and he brings accusations against us before the Father. And this is what Scripture tells us, that there is an accuser, Satan, who stands before the the Father, the judge of the universe, and he accuses us of the things that we've done wrong. But along with the Father, there is an advocate, our advocate, our Savior, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who stands before the Father and he intercedes. He pleads your case. He pleads my case. And so imagine this court of law, this cosmic court of law, as the enemy comes and says, hey, have you seen this person? And have you seen that person? Have you seen the thing that they just did wrong, the sin that they just committed? And Jesus steps in and he says, Father, I took that sin upon myself. I paid the penalty for that sin. And out of that response, out of that place where Jesus would say, I paid the price, that the verdict would be called out from the judge, not guilty, not guilty. And the enemy can keep coming and coming and coming and making accusation after accusation. And that Jesus would say, no, they are a new creation. They are in me. They are covered. I paid the penalty. And over and over and over again, that the declaration would be not guilty. Church, dear ones, we get to live in this freedom. We get to live in this freedom in Christ. This is available to all of us who would call upon the name of the Lord. But it comes when we keep Jesus at the center When we lose focus of who he is, just as the Corinthian church did all of those thousands of years ago, where they, in the midst of the tension between the world and their worship, between their identity as Corinthians and their identity in Christ, they struggled. How do we live this out? We deal with the same thing. And Paul says, no, no, no. You are a new creation. You have been made new in Christ, that you have been reconciled. You have been reconciled. And not only that, you've been given this ministry of reconciliation as the work of Jesus wells up in you as he stirs in you that you get to then bring that to the world. You get to bring that to the people you care about, the people around you, the people, the, the people whose lives your life intersects and the overflow of what Jesus has done in you will pour into them. We need to keep Jesus at the center. We need to remember who he is and what he has done, the freedom we have and the new life that we have in him, that Jesus is our identity. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the incredible work that you have done on our behalf, that you have brought new life to each one of us who would call upon your name. But Lord, I pray that we daily would be reminded of that work, that we daily would lean into you, that we would press into you, that we would build our lives on the rock, on Jesus, the foundation of who we are, that we would keep you at the forefront of everything we say and we do. We thank you that you do not count our sin against us, but that we have new life, we have freedom in you. We've been recipients of your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, God bless you. Would you make sure to take time this week to remember who Jesus is in your life. Look for him. Bring those thoughts before him. Worship him with everything you have. Well, bless you and have an amazing week. We look forward to seeing you next time.